0: Again, I want to welcome you to Providence Road. We are glad that you're here with us this morning, and we are continuing on in our series where we're walking through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and this will be the last sermon uh, for at least probably six to eight weeks in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break, and we'll pick back up in the book um, beginning probably in the, uh, in the middle of January. We'll be picking back up in this book, so this will be the last one, and we're a little over halfway through the book. So we're scheduled probably to finish 1 Corinthians sometime, probably in the late spring. Um, but um, we find ourselves kind of in the middle of the book here in chapter 9. So I'm going to read this passage, and it's uh, 18 verses here. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the ploughman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure at anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel? But I have made made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I still am trusted with, it, with stewardship. What is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. I'm thankful that... When we open this book every week, no matter where we're at or what it says, we can trust and believe that these are your very words, that this book is not just a book with words and good ideas, but it's actually inspired by you. The scripture is breathed out from the the spirit, the scripture tells us. So we're thankful for that, and because of that, we trust that Uh, When we open the word, you can move in our minds and our hearts and change the way we live when we leave this place. And we're trusting you this morning that your word will do that. So help us understand, help us believe, and help us place ourselves under your authority this morning as we look at this passage. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So in this passage today, Paul is going to continue on in his topic that he really started last week in in chapter 8. Um, concerning rights and freedoms that we have as followers of Jesus. But now he turns the attention to himself. He uses himself as an example of one who has chosen to lay down his rights. We saw last week that our primary calling as followers of Jesus really is to love God and love others as we would love ourselves. That's what Jesus says are the, the two greatest commandments. Everything can be summed up with these two things. And we, we are free and we have rights insofar as that we, what we are doing is aimed at loving God and loving others. So those two commandments help frame our freedoms and help frame our rights. But love should always be the governing principle that comes before even our freedoms and our rights. But the main barrier, one of the main barriers at least to this is our, 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 our tendency as human beings to be entitled. We um, are people that struggle with entitlement. We do. Um, two um, um, authors wrote a book called The Narcissism Epidemic about oh, 11 years ago or so. And in this book, they basically lay out that we live in, in a culture that really is um, antithetical to serving and to putting others before ourselves and in a, from a Christian standpoint to laying down our lives for the sake of others. We live in a culture that is really pushing against us in that way. And in this book, this, these two authors, uh, Gene Twinge and uh, guy by the name of, last name of Campbell, forgot his first name, uh, but they really dig into this, this age of entitlement. They call the, the time period we live in the age of entitlement. And here's a quote from this book. Go to the mall, or a concert, or a restaurant, and you can find them in the wild. The kids who have never been told no, whose sense of power and entitlement leaves onlookers breathless, the sand-kicking, foot stopping, arm-twisting, wheedling, whining despots whose parents presumably deserve the company of the monsters they, after all, created. Okay? And so we can kind of laugh and imagine this scenario with kids when we think of these verses, but I think if we were being honest, we are all, none of us are exempt from being entitled to allowing narcissism to creep into our lives. And the list that the authors present there, and this this picture of the kids in a mall or somewhere, you can replace those with some adultish type descriptions, and many of us would be guilty of this this idea of being entitled. And we're all prone towards this because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we'll look at that here in a second. But today, I think I want us to take a, just an honest look at ourselves and not dismiss this and say, well, I'm not entitled or I'm not narcissistic. But let's just stop and let's consider the fact that we may be a little bit entitled in some areas. We may have some um, shades of narcissism that creep up in certain areas of our life. And so I want us this morning to do the hard work of reflection um, as we work through this passage. So in this passage today, Paul is responding to a letter that the, the church in Corinth wrote to him. And he did, he's done that the last several weeks. We've looked at this book. He's now responding to things that they wrote about in this letter. They've raised some questions. They've built out some arguments. And last week, Paul addressed this, this issue of eating the food had been offered to idols, and Paul tells them that they should be willing to lay down their rights for others, brothers or sisters in the faith. He commands them to do that in the last, in the last passage. And Jay showed us last week, really, that the, the way to put our others' needs uh, before ourselves is to humble ourselves and to lay down our pride and love people well that will cause us to be willing to lay down our rights for the sake of others. So let's jump into the passage. Let's look at these first two verses because they really set up the rest of the passage. Verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And like other places, Paul doesn't quote the part in the letter that they wrote him. But you can get the sense from just reading this and these these series of questions. And you can feel the the sense of Paul's getting defensive here. Paul's trying to to get them to understand who he is and, and what he is truly about. And here's something about the background that we have to know that really is provoking Paul in this way. The, 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 we talked about uh, early on in the book, this, the popular custom was from, for philosophers and really good orators or speakers to come through the city, teach in the public places, share new ideas, gain a following and influence on their new idea and, and the thoughts for the day. And the way they would get compensation is they would rely on the people in that city. So they would get paid a little bit for the speaking thing, but they would get put up in a house they would get paid food while they were there. And they would be taken care of because this is how they made their living. They, weren't, they didn't have any publishing services for their books that, that, in those day and age. They, they weren't um, YouTube um, celebrities. They couldn't get ads. I mean, this is the way they made their living. But what this created was this competition for the people in Corinth to be hosts for them. Everybody was kind of jockeying for a position to host the famous orator, the famous philosopher coming into town. And so they would do different things. They would try to one-up one one another. And if they were able to um, have a person stay at their house, then they kind of felt like they put that person in their debt, the philosopher in their debt. They could maybe control them a little bit. They could ask favors of them. They could maybe even influence the topics that they were going to be talking about in the public square um, on those occasions that they were in town. And so you can, all, you can see the, the danger of this happening. And this, the, the church isn't exempt from this, right? This is what we would call codependency, right? Where, where let's just say a pastor becomes dependent upon a congregation for approval, for uh, the attaboys, for um, this, this sense of value and worth. And so the pastor begins to look at attendance and numbers for security. Pastors begin to to listen for the attaboys and the encouragement to to know that they're they're okay and they're doing a good job. So the pastor becomes dependent upon a congregation. And the congregation, it's called codependency, there's two ways here. The congregation becomes dependent upon the pastor to feed them, to make them feel good when they come on Sundays, to make them feel like they're growing in their relationship with God. And in worst case scenarios, maybe they want the pastor to teach things that are going to be easy for them to hear. Not things that would challenge them or make them convicted, but would actually kind of tickle the ears. So the congregation begins to make demands on the pastor because they become dependent upon the, the, the pastor. So this is a way that this can also be worked out in the church. And it's, it's a danger and we must watch out for it. And so what Paul is saying here, Paul didn't, and we're going to see this here in a second, Paul didn't take the money that he deserved as an apostle, because this is the way church leaders and apostles also made a living. They would come into town, and they would begin to, to, to lead and to shepherd and to build the church, and they would be compensated for doing that. This, is, this was their job. This was what they did. And so Paul had every right to take the money, to take the, the giving, to take the, the, the putting him up in houses and, and feeding him. He had every right to do that, but he didn't. He didn't take the support. And so the Corinthians begin to use this against him, saying, well, you must not be a real apostle. You must not be uh, legitimate because you're not taking the money like your other Christian brothers and sisters do when they come to town, but also like the philosophers of our date." In age due. So they, they were frustrated because, one, and we saw this in the beginning of the letter, that Paul wasn't a flashy speaker. He wasn't a flashy leader. He just wasn't that kind of guy, and he was okay with that. And then they were now frustrated because they couldn't pay him. They couldn't compensate him in order to maybe gain some kind of influence with Paul because he wouldn't take their money. So there was, they, they couldn't corner Paul. They couldn't get him to do what they wanted him to do. And they felt like they deserved, they felt like they were entitled to a certain kind of leader. Someone more like the philosophers of the day. Someone who could go toe-to-toe with the best philosophers and the best orators of that day in the public square. This is who they wanted. And they felt entitled to having a kind of pastor and leader like this. And with this word entitled, the Webster's just says, it's, it's believing oneself to be inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. It's like you feel like you deserve things. And the, the, there's something inherently inside of you that deserves these kinds of things. And commentator Stephen Um, uh, who's, who's, who we've been, who've been, we've been learning a lot from as he's written this great commentary on 1 Corinthians, as we've been walking through this book, he, he lists three dangers to um, entitlement. Number one, he says it distorts our perception of reality. So we become so fixated on ourselves, we really don't see reality for what it is anymore. Two, he says, entitlement impairs our ability to receive gifts. And you can imagine this playing out, right? If you feel like you're awesome and you deserve a lot, then you get a gift. These gifts are not going to be what you think you deserve. You're always going to be thinking, well, I deserve more. And so it really hurts your ability to feel good about someone giving you a gift because you're always going to think you deserve more so it hurts our ability to receive gifts and three it turns us against the world and against the ones we love because you have to demand your rights right like if you're if it's about you then you're going to begin to use other people as just pawns in in this in this game of getting what you want these are the dangers dangers of entitlement and this has plagued the human race ever since our first parents adam and eve you can remember the story right in the garden there god god has given them this beautiful garden they're the only two humans alive at this point. And he says, you have access to everything. Your, your, your purpose is to be fruitful and multiply, and, and, and everything's beautiful and wonderful. And he says, but, by the way, you can eat from any tree, any tree in the garden except one. Don't eat, you know, don't eat from this one, but you can eat from any of the other ones. And the serpent, which we, 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 we know that that's really the voice of, of Satan... Um, really digs deep down and goes after Adam and Eve. He goes after him, and he says this in, 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 uh, in kind of the middle of that the discourse with, with Eve in verse 5 in Genesis 3, which will be on the screen here. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, this fruit that they're not supposed to eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And and, and we all know that there are are so many times where we're like, if only only if I was in charge, only if I had my say, only if I was in charge of the world, or at least my world. This is these statements that we want to be in the place of God. And so I think we understand this temptation well. And and, and just this this idea that we'll know good from evil. We'll be all-knowing. We'll be on the same level as God if we... We do this, and, and Satan is tempting them in this way. And then in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, so it looked good to her, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And so this is uh, really Eve wanting to become like God, and Adam doing the same thing, right? Their, their world, Satan made themselves the center of the world, In that moment, they became God-like and said, I'm going to make my decisions for myself. I'm going to do what's best for me. And we, we struggle with this. All of us struggle with this. We struggle not to make God in our own image so we can get exactly what we want. Because if God was like us, if God knew better, then we would get what we want. We would get what we think we deserve. And we often, we do this with the scriptures, right? We pick and choose things from the scriptures that we want to believe and we want to, to, to bank our lives on, but some other things we're just not into because we feel like we, we know best and we know which scripture is legit and which scripture is not. Listen to this quote from Thomas Merton, old Catholic um, philosopher and theologian, talking about sin. All sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self exists That exists only in my own egocentric desires is the fundamental reality of life around which everything else in the universe is ordered. So I'm the center of the universe, he's saying. Thus, I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, feeling loved, in order to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And I wind up and I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world. If you're a person who's narcissistic or you feel like you're entitled, you are going to put on masks and fake it because you realize deep down you're not God. You shouldn't be the center of your world. Like we can't even like keep our calendars straight in our own individual lives, but yet we feel like we're the center of the world, and deep down we know we shouldn't be there. So we have to pretend. We have to fake it. We have to put things out, maybe on social media, that shows people that we're, we're great when we're really struggling and we've got deep, deep issues that we don't really want to address. So being entitled is a danger we must always be aware of. And really work hard to rid ourselves of. And not just assume that we don't struggle with it. We have to consider that we might be one who struggles with it. And we're going to get into how to do that at the end of our time later. But let's keep going. Verse 3. I'm going to move pretty quick here because this is all kind of one thought from Paul. So verse 3 says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. So here now he's he's about to tell them why he... Um, has every right to take the support. He has every right to take their their money and to to be able to to live off the Corinthian support. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any, any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So what he's doing here, he's just, these are just ordinary practices, right? These are just ordinary things, especially in verse 7 there, he uses a soldier, he uses a, a vineyard worker, and he uses a shepherd um, to, to say that I, I'm the one overseeing this, I'm the one working hard in the midst of this, why can't I benefit from the fruit? And this is the same thing Paul says early on, he's saying, am I not, am I not an apostle to you? Are you not the fruit of my labor? Is this church not in some way the fruit of the labor that I've put into this? He continues in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For as it is written, this is from the Old Testament. Now, for as it is written, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in the hope for sharing the crop. That, that the, the ox thing there is he's saying that if the ox is working hard to plow this field, he should be able to stop and eat something on the ground. He should be able to, don't muzzle him, don't put something on his mouth where he can't also eat and enjoy what he's, or, or even stay alive or get, still stay healthy based off of what he's doing for the work. Let's keep going. So, so there he's saying there's scriptural precedent, Paul's like so, he quotes Deuteronomy there and says, there's scriptural precedent for me um, kind of living off of, of the support here. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things among you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Which is kind of the common sense thing, right? Like if, if others are doing this, why shouldn't we get as well? And he continues on, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So now he points back to the religious custom of the temple, right? So he's, he's, he's lined out these defenses for why if he wanted to take the money to take the the help from the Corinthians, he could take it, and there would be nothing wrong with that. Um, he wants to make sure, though, he's not leveraging his position for gain. If you remember Paul's history, he was a Pharisee. He 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 did he was great at taking that. He was leveraging his 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 power and influence and his prestige and his Jewish background, leveraging that for his personal gain. For monetary gain, for prestige, he was used to this. This was the life he lived before God um, knocked him off um, and, and, and knocked him on the ground and, 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 um, and took the scales off of his eyes. In Acts, we read about that. So Paul knows this, and Paul's like, I don't want to get close to this. This custom is broken with the philosophers coming in. That gets messy here. It's okay if other apostles, other leaders do this, but in his wisdom, he's chosen not to do it. And he kind of says why in verse 15. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So he's, he's saying, I'm not writing this to guilt you. I'm not trying to do a passive-aggressive thing where I, I get you to give to me because I'm telling you that I don't want it, right? He's saying, I'm not doing that. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Once again, Paul's focus is the gospel, period. The mystery of the gospel, which he says earlier in the book, is his focus. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He understands that God has stewarded him. He's put him over the gospel. He's the steward of the message of the gospel. And then in verse 18, he says, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So he's saying his his fruit is seeing the gospel take root and the gospel work in people's lives. So what Paul's saying, he has something better now. He has something better than rights and entitlements. Like he doesn't need to, he doesn't even want to get close to taking this money because he doesn't want to feel entitled. He's singularly focused on the gospel and the message. And one of the dangers, one of the things that is so um, is so difficult about about a narcissism and entitlement is it leads us to making our, making us, you, me, the center of the story, the narrative of our lives. Like we can't have God be the main character. We can't have others be the main character. We need to be the main character of our lives. So every other character um, is a supporting actor or actress in the narrative where we are the center. This is a dangerous place to be. Listen to Stephen Um Quote here. When people view themselves as the protagonist in their own special life narrative, they end up running on a sense of entitlement. Well, of course I'm supposed to get into that school. This is my story, after all. Of course my hard work pays off in the end. Of course I get the promotion. Of course I get the girl. I get the home. I get the picturesque family. I get the kids who end up being even more self-absorbed and narcissistic than I am. Of course. This is my story. The trouble comes when the bubble pops and it always pops. Here's the deal when you are the center of your own story you you're you're going to use God and you're going to use people to accomplish what you feel like you need to accomplish but if God is the primary character of your story if he's the protagonist then you you love him above everything else, which causes then you, then you to put others before yourself, and then you kind of fall into place as a, as a supporting actor or actress in your story with God as the director. You're not in the director's chair. But you can imagine if you're in the director's chair of your own story that you're going to try to make that story turn out how you want it to turn out, and that is a dangerous place to be. So how do we fight this, right? How do we fight this? How do we fight I think all of our, um, we're all prone to do this, right? Um, Well, I think we're doing one of two things when we're being um, entitled or narcissistic. The first thing we could be doing is you could be minimizing the depths of your sin. You could be minimizing the depths of your sin. Um, Remember, the Bible says that because of our sin, what we deserve as death. Look at Romans 6 here, Romans 6, um, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, that's a popular verse. We kind of know that verse. But I just want to stop and think about this verse for a minute. So what we deserve is death. That's what this verse is saying, right? Like for like, the wages, it's the punishment. It's what sin deserves. The payment for our sin, that's what wages of sin means, is death. Like that's what we should get. That's what we deserve apart from God's grace and mercy. We deserve death and so if we minimize our sin if we think well i'm not that bad right i'm not that depraved i'm not that wicked i'm 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 actually a pretty good person other than these two areas you are minimizing your sin and therefore you are going to cheapen the grace and mercy of god because you don't think you need to be forgiven much jesus tells the parable the one who knows he's been who is guilty much is forgiven much and that changes the way we live. And I know in my own life, um, there's this sliding scale that I can quickly fall into in thinking of sin. Like, like on some days, I'm like a six or a seven as far as like the moral person. Some days, I may be a three or a four. But usually, there's somebody worse off than me. Like the guy that just is really annoying me that I really just don't want to like. He's always a one, and two, one or two in my mind, right, on that scale. Like he's far worse than I am. Then there's these other people who, in my mind, they're like eight or nines all the time. And, I'm, and I feel shameful and guilty because I'm not as good as they are. And when, that's, when we have this sliding scale for our sin, you can imagine how horrible that is to live in this, in this idea of comparison. Instead of realizing, if you are a human being, you deserve death. We all deserve death apart from the grace and mercy of God. And this is... This, this is um, This comes up even in in my home, right? Like, I feel like when I get home from work, there's a part of me that feels like I deserve some quiet, right? I've worked hard. When I walk into the house, I deserve some quiet, I deserve some space to be with my own thoughts, and I don't have to be thinking about church stuff or whatever, and that, at least in our season right now, that doesn't happen very often. And I can feel myself feel that entitlement rise up. Well, I deserve this. And the, 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 the scripture answer is like, you don't deserve that. You deserve death, remember? Remember, apart from God, you deserve death. So your quiet time that you want here, Jeremy, Father Jeremy, Husband Jeremy right now, like that, I should feel that. I should feel the weight that I deserve death apart from the grace and mercy of God. So on one hand, we could be minimizing our own sin. Or on the other hand, we could be minimizing the gift that we have. Look at the second part of this verse. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But, that's that's an important but, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. This gift is free and it is eternal life. So number one, we have to feel the weight of our sin or this is going to be a small gift. Gift. If we're a pretty good person, that gift is like a stocking stuffer. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice, you know. uh, I'll use it, whatever. But if we're like, I I deserve death. I am spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus. I am hopeless, God. Help me. That gift becomes priceless. becomes a treasure. It becomes eternal life becomes an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. It's reconciliation with the creator of the universe. It's being welcomed into his family as a son or a daughter. It's being empowered by the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the helper, all the days of my life so he can empower me to live the life that God has called me to live and on and on and on and all of the benefits that come from the gospel. That is the free gift. If we understand the depths of our sin, and we understand the glorious, free, no-strings-attached gift we receive in the gospel, that will destroy entitlement. That will kill it. Because I have, I, there's nothing that I can boast in. I can never say I deserve this. because No, because I deserve death. Well, now I have everything in Christ, but it's not me who did any of that. So now I can say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to act? How do you want me to be made? What rights do you want me to lay down? What thing, how can I love my brother and sister? I'm free to do all of that because I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not a narcissist anymore because with the sin and Jesus, it is clear that I don't need to be the hero of my story. I do not need to be the protagonist of my story based off my sin and how beautiful and wonderful the person of Jesus is, Period. So it puts me in a proper place to be able to freely serve, to freely give, to, fr- to, f- to put others before myself. And I don't have to be entitled to anything. It's a free gift, and we need to think about that. So here's what this should produce, and this is, and I'll end with this. should produce humility. should produce a thankful heart. This, this, this Sunday before Thanksgiving, I think the thing we should be most thankful about is... The gospel, that we've been rescued from the depths of our sin, that we were spiritually bankrupt and through the person and work of Jesus, we are reconciled to God if we have faith in that gift, if we believe in that gift he has given us. And the more we can think about this and the more we center our lives on this, this is why we're gospel people here, we talk about the gospel over and over because I do think this is the only thing that will truly kill entitlement and narcissism is the beauty of God's grace and mercy and an awareness of who we were before God entered our life through the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're we're thankful on this week of Thanksgiving. Um, Should we be thankful for all of the blessings we have? Absolutely, because we know every good gift comes from you. We deserve nothing good, right? So every good gift comes from you. Our families, our jobs, our health. The fact that we're still breathing and we're still alive, even if if maybe we're not in good health. We have much to be thankful for, but I pray above everything else, the thing that we should be thankful for that that, that just pales in comparison to everything is thankful for your grace and your mercy and the gospel because we do not deserve it. No human being deserves it. Because we all want to be God. We all, left up to our own devices, would be entitled narcissists who want to put ourselves in the director's chair of our lives. I pray you would help us. We need to to hear this message daily. I pray you would remind us of the goodness of the gospel. Remind us of your beauty. Drive us to the scriptures where we can learn and we can can sit at, at, at your feet and learn from you. Help us. Be the kind of people that desire and pursue to know you so we can be changed by the gospel. It's in your sons' name we pray, amen.